0: Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together to learn. And I do pray for our teacher, Bob, Lord. I pray for his voice, Heavenly Father, that you would give it to him quickly and that you'd heal him and help us to learn more about who you are and the greatness of your salvation, all for the sake of your name and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Yes. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. I'm going to depend on a lot
2: of class discussion. I woke up this way this morning. Read verse 1 here.
1: Now these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistic Hellenistics arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution.
2: Does anybody know why they had to take care of widows?
3: I don't think anyone else did but that's all I know.
2: (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah, they couldn't just go down and get on Social Security. (laughs) So uh, the Jews especially had to take care of each other. And that was true for the Christians. Now the term complaint I have it on my slide. Grumbling. Does anybody know where else in the Bible we've heard grumbling?
1: All all the way through the Old Testament. Give examples. The water. Yeah,
2: Sinai. How about the manna? Yeah. Luan. Exodus sixteen two and three. This is the
4: first I'm teaching with no voice. <laughs> Exodus 16, uh, verses 2 and 3, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died in the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness and made this whole assembly die of hunger. (laughs) So they grumbled.
2: The same Greek word for grumbling is used in the Septuagint, Old Testament and in the New Testament. Another place it's used is Luke 15:2. Who wants to read it?
4: Luke 15:2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them."
2: So they grumbled about Jesus like in the Old Testament, they grumbled about Moses. Do you think there's a purposeful link between Jesus and Moses? Luke did it on purpose. Do you know about it, Eric? I would love to wax eloquent.
0: Well, certainly uh, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, But Even he prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up for him, for the Israelites, a prophet that would come from their own ranks and that they should listen to him. But here the Israelites, they grumble against Yahweh as they grumble against Moses, but now they're grumbling against Yahweh himself in Christ, this new mediator of the new covenant. They're never satisfied with God's provisions, and that's one of the things that Characterizes the Israelites as grumbling against what God is doing, never perceiving, never coming to faith, and always rebelling against Him. And that's what God often refers to as having a stiff neck or having a hardened heart, and it necessitates, of course, a circumcised heart. nor in
1: uh, Philippians 2:14, well, I'll start at uh, 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Amen.
2: Now, to make it even more obvious that there's a link between the wilderness wanderers and the people in the time of Jesus... Let's read John 6:41. Could you do that, Peter?
5: John 6:41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, "I am the bread which came down from heaven." So they grumbled about the manna, and
2: now they grumble about Jesus. What is our lesson? Don't we need to believe and accept God's provision? People get tired of hearing the word of God taught. They get itching ears. Tell us something practical. I've heard that. My life as a preacher, we don't want to hear theology. Why don't you preach on something Practical. Eric or And Eric said, Well what? Well how about the election? Is that what they said? Yeah, nothing's more practical than the gospel.
3: I probably wouldn't even raise my hand except we're we're trying to help participate here in a this is your you're learning patience, I guess, which I need that myself, but you know I, I so this is just an editorial comment, and, you know, you guys might agree or might not, but it, what Bob's just saying, you know, uh, people want to hear something new, something innovative. We grumble. This is what people do. We grumble, and we get bored. We want new. We want innovativeness. And I hate to bring up, you know, concepts of management because I don't think that that has any place in theology. But it is human nature, you know, that if people aren't doing, they get bored. And so if we are I think that our mainstream churches and and too many churches, they're not doing anything. And so they want to be entertained all the time. And that means let's have something new out of the Bible. Let's have something different, something more innovative. This is just the way man is. And And if we would be, now this is a plug for the evangelism team, (laughs) you know, if we would be doing, if we would be thinking about how we can reach more, I think God wants us to do that to keep us busy maybe or something, I don't know. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out.
2: 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11.
3: Okay, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has have come.
2: The warning against grumbling is for us.
0: I was just going to build off what Eric said. You know, there is a trend in even the seminaries to want to always have something new. When Bob and I were in seminary, One thing you realize is that those who have to do a PhD, when they do their PhD, they're required to, in their dissertation, add something new to the discussion. And if you're not adding anything new to theology, then you're basically rejected. Well, then what you're promoting is not faithfulness, but innovation for innovation's sake. And what's interesting, one of the things we learned in our study in Revelation is that the seven churches... None of them were ever rebuked for not being innovative. They were not rebuked for being too small. What they're rebuked for is not being faithful, faithful to what we've been given. And so, um, yeah, anyway, it's well said. I think you make a great point.
2: There's extra credit today.
5: <laughs> I'm just going to uh, give a plug for the Galatians uh, CIC um, in the teachings that one we have at the desk here, we give to the visitors Galatians five twenty four and twenty five. Uh, Eric and Bob discuss going too far, and it's anything beyond uh, the the doctrines and, and uh, the teachings of, of of the of the scriptures. And that's what people that's what we have today. People are going too far beyond what the gospel teaches. It's a great, great CD. <laughs>
4: And this is kind of building off of Eric, too, and it's not very profound, but it makes me think of, like, in my own life with what I'm familiar with, but any time that you're doing any kind of training of animals, dogs, horses, whatever, it's a very slow process, and it's very boring because it's very repetitive, and it's easy to want to give up and quit. And when the Lord pulls you out of the world and into salvation, we, we... have to start like Bob's talking about with these doctrines and we have to have our mind transformed and renewed and it's a, it may be a slow process of learning brand new things that is baby step, baby step, baby step and it does get boring
2: they were tired of manna Harry could you come here sure. Pohill could you read it for us
0: yeah Hill. let me read that What's his first name, John? John Pohill? The commentary, the uh, New American Commentary on yeah. Acts, I think is, it is. He says, in Jewish society, widows were particularly needy and dependent, and the Old Testament singles them out, along with orphans, as the primary objects of charitable deeds. The Hellenist widows may have been a particularly sizable group. Diaspora Jews often moved to Jerusalem in their twilight years to die in the Holy City. When the men died, their widows were left far from their former home, and family to care for them, and were thus particularly in need of charity. Wow, it's very interesting. Unquote. So took care of them. Took care of them. Wow. Thank you. Acts six two and
1: three. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers." pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty.
2: So, you'll see in Acts priority of preaching the gospel and the word of God. Nothing was more important. And the apostles were appointed by Christ to this duty. And they needed to stick with it. But they didn't lessen The importance of caring for the widows and so the people chosen had the same kind of qualifications the power of the Holy Spirit the wisdom of God we'll see that some of these particularly Stephen will become a great and powerful witness even being a martyr for the gospel so my dear friends, do not despise what seems simple. The basic duties of the Christian are profound. And they and to do the basic duties that we have as Christians requires the power of God by the Spirit and the wisdom of God from the Word of God. And so whatever duty God has given you in whatever realm, know that it's of utmost importance and don't belittle it. The apostles had a unique role. Paul Hill again says this they alone in all of Christian history were the witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus their witness was unique unrepeatable and absolutely foundational to the Christian movement surely it was not fitting for anything to limit their bearing witness so the apostles role was unique the term give up in the Greek means forsake and it means leaving behind what's important God's word is their profound responsibility cannot be left behind let me make an application in the church the apostolic witness is carried on by those who preach and teach the word of God and to that end nothing is more important I don't care what they say in the seminary I don't care what the social media says the polling what do you want if you go to church I don't care what you want you're gonna get the word of God you want politics turn on the tv if you're sick of politics come to church (laughs) hallelujah preaching of the word is still of primary importance now wisdom does anybody know what the bible means by wisdom He has knowledge of God's truth, and the ability to apply it. Knowledge of God's truth, and the ability to apply. Yes.
6: Oh, I was just going I was thinking of uh, Jesus. It says, uh, you know, the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of God is is Christ. It's, you know, it's the mystery revealed. Yeah, He is
2: God's wisdom.
6: And I was, and I was also thinking, as far as our reliance on God. I was thinking, you know, the Israelites, they started out... Well, even Adam, he wanted something. You know, he wanted... What was it that the devil was telling him? Forget what it was. It was beautiful, good to touch, yeah. But anyway, so he took the fruit. He wanted something more. And then the Israelites, in the same way, they were looking for a king, or I guess first God gave them judges. And it's like, you know, God's brought him out of of Egypt. And it's like, you know, he's... uh, By his right hand, and they're still they're looking for another king. They say, "Give us something that we can see. Give us something that you know that we can that we can see that we can trust." (laughs) Yeah, they basically
2: they chose Saul.
6: Basically, you know, they said, "You're not. We we want something better than you." And so God said in His anger, He said He gave him a king, and He's also said in His anger He took it away. And uh, you know, it's 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 similar to to us today because it's like. You know, Give us a leader. Give us the pope. Give us uh, a leader. Give us uh, a great debater. Give us a smart theologian. Give us somebody that we can look to. Somebody, when God says to us, he says, uh, you know, in the New Testament, he says, I teach, you know, so that you don't even need a teacher. He says he gives us the body of Christ. He says he gifts us. He says he gives us, you know, to some knowledge, to some wisdom, to some... That even says healing, and so it's like. But yet, but yet we still. It's like we away from God, we look and, and we find. So you know, God's sure he says he'll teach me. Sure he says you know everything, but what uh, what is right? I need to look at uh, all the history in the you know in the world that's been written down in books. And it's like, do we not have a God that, uh, that you know, he saved the Israelites with his strong right hand? Has it shrunk?
2: could you give the mic back to Brian to read again he's my reader thank you Eric
1: but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip the Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas (laughs) a proselyte of Antioch.
2: You're a good reader. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I. You got the names. I give you the hard job. Now one of the things Luke does throughout Luke Acts to Volume Work is he introduce a character who we don't previously know who will become important In the later narrative, right? And here, Stephen in these verses is introduced. Verse chapter 7 will be all about Stephen. And in chapter 7, Paul is introduced, holding the cloaks, but then he becomes a key person. So this is Luke's narrative and his. Holy Spirit-inspired way of writing. The term devote ourselves comes from the same root as devoted in Acts 2.42. Uh, someone read Acts
7: 2.42. Barb. Uh, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer.
2: Amen. Mm -hmm. We just published a new CIC article. Anybody seen it? It's out, and it's about means of grace, and it starts out dealing with Acts 242 and then showing how how God works. Today, people by books that are called devotional. They rarely have anything to do with Acts 242.
7: Hi, me again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, on that hot topic and what we were talking about earlier about people wanting more, you did an article on Jesus Calling, you know, as far as that horrible devotional quote-unquote. And then um, also people wanting Something extra besides extra biblical. Um, Beth Moore in her most recent, um, I guess, conference, she's starting to um, discuss the romancing of God and ro- the romance aspect. That's her new revelation that she got. And so there's just so much error. Satan just really in, just in, it provides so much error for people to be deceived by. And um, so I just wanted to mention that.
2: Yeah, Eric. Eric over here. we got lots of Eric's.
0: I'll try to eat up some air time for you here, Bob. Uh, one of the things that Bob has done for years is point us to the means of grace. And I love that the fact that you're pointing out the connection with devoted. Because what's interesting is in Acts 2.42, the four things that they're devoted to are things that are just seen as optional now within the church. And one thing I want you to consider is, um, let's take baptism, for example. Baptism, I would say, is also a means of grace but we don't devote ourselves to it, meaning we don't do it continuously. Why? Because it wrecks the meaning. The Israelites were baptized once. They didn't go back through the Red Sea, right? So we're baptized once. We don't devote ourselves to it, but it's a means of grace. I always uh, look at church discipline also as a means of grace, but hopefully, by God's grace, none of us will ever need that. But it's there to bring the elect back to saving faith, but we don't devote ourselves to do routinely church discipline, right? And so what Bob's really pointing out is these are the four things that God has ordained in order to sanctify the believer. What's happened now is they're being jettisoned, and in the seminaries, they're teaching spiritual disciplines. And so what Bob has done is he's come up with a grid, and I don't know if anyone has that worksheet. It was on the three things that are consistent with a means of grace. Number one, there's a command given by God. Number two, there's a promise. And number three, it's accessible. And you'll find all of that in this article that he just wrote. So... I wanted to save your voice a little bit, Bob, and get that out to you. Tell people the website. Oh, yeah, the website, as we always say every week, cscministrate.org. Thank you.
2: The apostles are devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so these are two means of grace. And Stephen was deficient in neither. He's one of the associates of the apostles. And God will use him, as we will see. In Luke Acts, people full of the Holy Spirit are those who speak reliably for God. You should listen to them. If you go to the beginning of Luke, you'll see that. The Holy Spirit came on people and they spoke for God to announce the coming of Messianic salvation. The congregation were the ones who did the choosing. Okay? How do we choose the ones who we call deacons? The term is not used here. Well, they're chosen by the congregation understanding how important these ministries are and their people who serve. Now Stephen and Philip soon become important preachers. Verses 6 and 7. Reader.
1: These people they just selected they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them and the word of god continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith wow wow
2: what's the significance here of laying on of hands
0: It, uh, it's often used to show solidarity. Uh, solidarity with, uh, so you see, for example, in the Old Testament, there was the laying on of hands with the elders, the 70. You have it also with uh, when we lay on hands with deacons and other elders. That's often the way to show solidarity. Even
2: the scapegoat, right?
0: Exactly. Even the scapegoat, you lay your hands on to say he's the vicarious. They vicariously are taking the sins away. So there's solidarity with that too. Yeah, well said. Good. Priests
2: in Judaism were often opposed to Christ and the gospel, but many of them are now being converted. Notice that the faith is something to be obeyed. The gospel has moral content. Does it not? The gospel makes demands on us. The gospel causes us to be called to action. Once we hear the gospel, we cannot be neutral. This doesn't fit with multiculturalism. Everybody gets to choose their religion and what to believe. Well, it's true. You can believe anything you want, but it doesn't make it true. The gospel is to be obeyed. The growing or increasing reminds us of Luke eight
1: eleven. Reader. Uh, Luke eight eleven. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Is that all it says? <laughs> that's eight eleven. You want me to go on? Oh, the seed grew. Okay, that's
2: fine. So the word of God grows as Jesus predicts. Now, the gospel includes the idea of the forgiveness of sins. As long as you're reading, Acts 5:31.
1: He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen.
2: Eric, Hebrews 3:18 and 19. And please comment.
0: you might as well sit over there. Honorable. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hebrews three eighteen through 19, Bob? Yes. Gotcha. Let's see. Let me pull it up here. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Yeah, so here you have the Israelites there. Um, They are grumbling against God in the wilderness, and they're living in disbelief. And the evidence of their lack of belief is seen in their poor deeds. They don't obey. So this is one of the passages where you see there's a relationship between obedience and faith. Um, Think about there's often seen people. Remember Luther? He said that the epistle of James was an epistle of straw. And he said that because James seemed to be indicating that you're saved by works. Well, James doesn't teach that. And a close reading is where James qualifies what kind of faith saves. So what's interesting is when you get to one of the chair passages on justification by faith alone, Romans 4, Paul uses the example of Abraham where he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis fifteen six. Well, James takes Abraham as well, but he goes to Genesis 22. And the point is, because Abraham believed, James says he was willing to act on that, so much so that he's willing to give his son his only son. And so there's this relationship. So James isn't saying, no, you're saved by works. What he's saying is your works indicate whether you believe. And in this passage in Hebrews, the reason they grumbled and they fell in, disbelief, or in uh, disobedience is because they didn't believe. That's the relationship. So... When we consider uh, this relationship, as Bob was saying, to obedience to the gospel, think about it, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians 1, people perish because they don't obey the gospel. As Bob is saying, there's a moral content to that. You come to faith, you're given the spirit, and you're able to obey. And so that's the relationship between faith and obedience we often see. Amen. I
2: couldn't have said it better <laughs> if I could say anything.
5: Bob or Eric, just a question. Uh, often I come across, when you refer to uh, your last footnote down at the bottom of this slide, Obedience to Faith, people will say, well, I believe that, uh, but who am I to judge if someone believes something different? The point is, is if we believe it, don't we have to take that on? In other words, we can't excuse... Uh, how can I say, an alternative point of view or, or just a disagreement, don't we as Christians have to take that on? Yes.
2: If you look at the preaching in Acts, it made moral claims. Could you explain that? The gospel could claim something from us. Repent.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking, you're right, that there's moral claims that the gospel brings, there's not a neutrality that we can have. When we're called to repent, we're called to turn from a different point of view. Uh, meta naeo, meta means after change. Naeo is the, the mind. So there's a change of mind. And so you're going the way of the world, which has all of these other concepts, which you're alluding to, Peter. And biblical repentance is where you change your mind. And so you no longer think like the world. And that's why we're called in Romans 12 to not to be conformed to the image of this world, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. So there's a change of the mind. You turn from the things of the world to God. And I was also thinking of the command in 1 Peter 3.15, where we're called to contend for the faith. We're called to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. And we see Jude 3, we're called to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. These aren't things that are just suggestions, they're, they're commands. And so we're When we're given those opportunities, yes, I think we should use wisdom. I don't think there are some times where you can't get into it, but at at all costs, we want to be about those who lovingly give the truth. That's what we're called to do. And uh, one of the issues in 1 Peter 3 is that when he says, sanctify the Lord in your heart, what that's really about is who do you fear? Do you fear your neighbor? Is he king? Or are you sanctifying set-apart Jesus as Lord? And so, if you set apart Jesus, Lord, then you don't fear your neighbor, and you'll you'll end up contending for the faith. But if you fear your neighbor more than Jesus, you'll just you'll you'll shut up. <laughs> and so, yeah, that I, we are commanded. You're right; we can't let it go. There's no moral neutrality. Yeah, yep. we're compromising if we.
1: Yeah. What about back to our uh, when we had our logic uh, uh, sessions? That, you know, God's word is truth, so you can't have truth and then. Somebody else say something else and have A
0: is true and non-A. Exactly. Yeah, the, the law of non-contradiction is if A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. So, for example, those who believe in um, the book like Jesus Calling, that's a pantheistic God. Well, that's a different God. And so that would be a God that's different than A. That would be non-A. Well, if in order to have the God of Jesus Calling, you'd have to have non-A. While you have the God of the Bible, A, so then you'd have a contradiction, so you have to speak up. You can't have A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Now, with that, you're going to, a lot of you guys that are going out witnessing, you're witnessing to Muslims who will say, well, you believe in a contradiction because you believe in the Trinity. But realize the Trinity isn't a contradiction because we're not saying that God is one and that he's three at the same time in the same relationship. What we're saying is that we have one God, In three persons two different categories it's like saying we have one government with three branches we don't have one government in three governments we have one government in three branches we have one God in three persons so it's not a contradiction so don't let them throw that in your face so
2: maybe this will help me two mics when I debated Doug Padgett and I talked about that over and over I said there's no such thing it's a square circle. <laughs> right. What's a square circle? <clears throat> <clears throat> On the way out from the debate, one of his followers talked to me. And he said, oh, there could be a square circle. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, boy, <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> I- I just just wanted to add one other thing too on the obedient to the faith. I I was. Uh you know, a lot of times you take classes and, and you don't necessarily get all of the citations from the teacher and all of that. Now, you guys are very good about providing all of it. And I took a lot of classes from a guy who had actually studied. He teaches biblical Hebrew, and he's a pretty, pretty, seemed like a pretty solid guy, and I, I still believe he's pretty solid. And one of the things that he taught us, which I, I think is true, but you guys might know otherwise, is that in the Hebrew culture, very different than the Greco-Roman culture, okay, and in the Hebrew culture, to believe meant to act. You know, we have this dichotomy in our minds because we are kind of a product of the Greco-Roman uh, philosophical system in our culture. And, and so we're, we're all the time thinking, well, I, I believe this, but this is what I'm going to do. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew culture was about God and faith, Greco-Roman culture was about logic and man's reason, and in the Hebrew culture, to believe meant to be obedient. And so, when people uh, argue about, do you need a
2: real contradiction?
3: Right. Both
2: things are true. Yeah. In other words, obeying your faith is logical. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Now I want to point something out, if I can. These were probably a lot of the same people who said, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Here they believe and they become obedient. My point is this, do not give up on people. Amen. You do not know who will repent. You don't know Who will become a Christian. Paul held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. Two chapters later he's converted and he preaches the gospel. Sometimes when people are violently opposed to the gospel I think there's a likely convert. When I was, by the way, I know I got this voice problem, but I'm doing better in a lot of ways. I no longer have a blood doctor. I no longer get transfusions. I'm making my own blood. Thank you for praying. When I was still getting blood, a nurse saw me with this, just like this. It's the Greek in my notations. She said, what is all that? says the Greek Bible, studying. She says, I have a friend who's an atheist and she's hostile to Christians. Will you help me witness to her? Now, this is someone that many years ago she graduated from high school with. Eric, you helped too, remember? And we started writing... Up. Uh, documents answering every question this hostile lady friend of my nurse was a Christian had to say and we kept answering again and again every question no matter how hostile we gave evidence for the faith and then I went in for a blood transfusion and the nurse said my friend, has become a Christian. (laughs) So, you never know. Many priests became obedient to the faith. We're to be ready to give an answer. Eric, thank you for helping. And see, these questions need to be answered. There are answers. The Bible rests on truth. In fact, and evidence that Jesus was really raised from the dead, that the tomb was really empty. And so this person who was so hostile is now serving the Lord. I no longer see the nurse because I no longer need transfusions, but I know we'll eventually see her in heaven Amen. and her friend i think i'll 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 now go to the next PowerPoint because why well, push a bad thing with my voice here uh go ahead,
1: Pastor Don Johnson lived next door to me when I was a young man out of the military, and <clears throat> I used to get in uh verbal arguments with him and his congregation on a weekly basis and uh Pastor Johnson and his congregation prayed for me every Sunday for years uh, and when uh, I got saved, I was so excited I got home, but there was no there was nobody home, so I went next door and I walked in. To their church and there was a secretary that sat right in front of the doors and every time I came into the church when she saw me she would kind of roll her eyes like oh no here we go again (laughs) and this time I walked in and I'm sure she was thinking the same thing and I marched right past her and I went into Pastor Johnson's office and told him that I was saved and we rejoiced And that's when he told me that for years, him and his congregation uh, had continued praying for me. That's the uh, short version. Amen. Who can close in prayer? How about Norm? (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you that we could have this time together and discuss your word and these are truly the words of life for us and we we are thankful that we have uh brothers and sisters and we can get together and discuss these things and this is uh, just kind of a refuge from the world where we can get together and encourage each other and just thank you for this time together and
3: we ask for your blessing on the rest of this morning and on the sermon and we ask this in jesus name amen